QuickMed Claims presents the Board and Collar 10Q30. We pose 10 questions to emergency medical service leaders from across the United States on key matters affecting EMS nationwide. You'll find their unique responses interesting and thought-provoking, all in 30 minutes. Your host, QMC's Director of Client Services, Gary Harbath. Good day, everyone. It's good to be with you. And welcome to 10Q30, where we pose 10 questions in 30 minutes to EMS leaders from across the country. Today, joining us are our good friends at Life Med Alaska, based out of Anchorage. We're glad to have them, and welcome, gentlemen. We're glad you're here. Uh, with us today is Russ Edwards, their CEO, Steve Hyano, their Chief Operating Officer, Doug Williams, the Director of Flight Operations, and Eric Lewis. Director of Clinical Services. We're a few miles apart. I think uh, we're recording this. It's three in the afternoon in the East Coast, and it's uh, 10 in the morning where you are. So good morning to you. Before we get started here, if you could give us just a quick overview of your organization uh, to enlighten the folks listening. And uh, if you could do that, then we'll move forward with questions. Sure, yeah, thanks, Gary. It's, we are in a unique situation, uh, given our geography and topography up here. Um, essentially, Alaska's uh, area is, if you were to cobble together Montana, California, and Texas, that's the landmass we're talking about that we cover here uh, in Alaska. If you were to, sometimes you can go ahead and Google search that some of the people that, you know, who are uh, offline right now can hop on there real quick, take a look at a uh, picture of Alaska over the top of the U.S., and you'd see that in the north, you could put the northern border in Minneapolis, the southern border would be in Dallas. The eastern border would be in Jacksonville, and the uh, western part of the Aleutian chain would be in the, the city of San Diego. So that's uh, obviously that has a lot to do with how we have to uh, prepare our people, the aircraft. Uh, it's a unique situation, and then just the environments involved are quite quite diverse. Um, this entity, as we know it, as LifeMed, has been. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary last November, um, but for the last 30 years. Our parent companies that we came from have been operating here in, uh, in Alaska. So we have ground transportation, we have helicopters, and we have uh, fixed wing uh, turboprop and jet uh, based in seven different uh, places around the state. So that's kind of the, uh, like you said, the 50,000 foot view of, of our company. Gentlemen, would you be kind enough to tell us a little bit about your staffing model? I know you have ground ambulances, you have rotor as well as fixed wing. If you could enlighten us a little more about that, I'd appreciate it. So uh, we have different platforms based on acuity. Uh, our critical care platforms, a fixed wing, our helicopters, that kind of thing, our nurse paramedic teams. Uh, we do have an airplane out in Western Alaska that flies to the villages, which we consider Air 911. They're actually a dual paramedic role, and uh, they are picking up patients basically like a ground ambulance in any uh, 911 system. Uh, and then our ground service paramedics, uh, we usually uh, staff with a paramedic and an EMT. And then in Alaska, we also have advanced EMTs, which are just below paramedics, that we will also consider ALS providers, and they'll be dual EMTs from time to time. Gentlemen, on any given day, how many people do you actually have staffing uh, your aircraft and your vehicles? Yeah, off the top of my head. 
Four. Four. Fourteen in the flight realm uh, any given day, and then uh, eight on the ground ambulance. Pretty sizable operation then. I was just right. here in Anchorage, right? The 14th. I was just counting two for... Oh, okay. Yeah. Three crews are on. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. Hey, um, on a bit of a lighter note, I know this is a podcast and our listeners cannot see you, but as we're recording it, I can. And I see all of you sitting around a table. Each of you have jackets on. So I guess this begs the question of what is the temperature up there today? <laughs> oh, yeah, it started off uh, in the mid 40s. It's going to get up in the, it may touch 60 today. Wow, that's good. Okay. Um, it's been a long time coming, though. Spring happened last week, I think. Um, and it just kind of kicked in. Now we're in the you know 40s to 60s on a regular basis. Hopefully, very regular basis going forward. And I do believe we're over 16 hours of daylight. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. My parents are up from Idaho right now. And where they're at in Idaho, it's 85 and 90 degrees. And up here, they were expecting to be substantially cooler. But they're, they're surprised how warm the sun feels, uh, even though we're still very much just wrapping up our spring season. It's funny that you say that, Eric. My son was in Anchorage on business a few weeks ago, and he FaceTimed us uh, one evening, and I guess it was about 9 o'clock or so up there, and uh, it was like broad daylight, where, of course, we're back here in Pittsburgh, and it's getting uh, dark around 7, 7.30 this time of year, and uh, we couldn't believe it, and he said it usually ends up getting dark around 10 or 10.30. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and then it'll be dusk for a while, so it's really only dark from maybe 2 to 4, one to three, somewhere in there. That's interesting. So uh, how does that uh, play on your sleep, folks? Especially, how does it uh, affect your crews? I think everyone gets used to it. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's 9 o'clock at night and everyone's out still tossing the football and having a good time, and it occurs to you that maybe you should settle down and eat dinner and consider bed. <laughs> I and see. The sun, sun gives you good energy, for sure. Yeah. So might I ask, how do you educate your public I know you cover a broad geographic area, and that presents its challenges, I'm sure. But how do you get the word out about Life Med Alaska and the services you offer? We try to make our presence in as many communities as we can. Um, much of Alaska, uh, the population centers are predicated around um, the mouths of rivers, where there's a lot of commercial fishing, or uh, native villages that have worked their way up over time, so, um, seaports, that sort of thing. Um, we definitely make a presence in those communities. Those are um, the population centers. We do a lot of joint training with the communities, a lot of simulation with EMS. Uh, we participate in just sponsoring um, events like a, a bike run or like a 5K run hike combination. Uh, so we try to get our name out there as much as possible. Alaska is a very active community. So there's a, really a lot of opportunity. We don't have to get that creative because there's always something going on. Um, this coming weekend starts the Mountain Runner Series where people are running up mountains and it's a season-long um, event where every couple of weeks there's a new mountain that they run up and that's an opportunity for us to go staff the medication tent or the first day tent and put our name out there. Great. Well, enjoy that mountain run, guys. Yeah, you won't see me doing that anytime soon. Um, I'm interested. How do the organizations, the local ambulance services, request your services when they're at the scene? Uh, what's the protocol for that? If, if you would explain that in a little greater detail, I'd appreciate it. 
Um, so maybe a couple of us can chime in. I'll start us, start us off. Um, in our population centers, such as Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Juneau, Soldotna, we definitely have the high-level EMS system that you'd expect anywhere else in the U.S. Um, but it quickly tapers off from that down to a volunteer service, and then maybe a volunteer service that involves a pickup truck and not necessarily a true ambulance because they're um, a village that has very few miles of roads isn't connected to another village um, and in that sense are relying on local support systems. Um, those are really easy for those to activate us. Um, they just activate us through our dispatch number, our 1-800 number, and we can respond. Um, Anchorage is a tight... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, this is, um, Anchorage is such a... It, it has a decent population, but there's three hospitals and none of them are that far away. So we don't do a lot of critical care in Anchorage, we do a lot of critical care that comes to Anchorage, if that makes sense. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, to add to what Eric's saying, there's a, it's, it's such a multi-tiered system uh, that is kind of a little off the cuff sometimes. It's, can you complete what needs to be done with what you have? And if you can, you ask the next person. Um, and there's a big military presence up here, obviously. And I would say, uh, Compared to the lower 48, even the 49 states, I would say the military is actively involved in civilian EMS operations and rescue more than anywhere else in the country, um, and we're supported by them. We've had our staff get on C-130s and, and Blackhawks to go to scenes and take people down to the lower 48. Um, just whatever resource we have, we use it. It's kind of an understanding in the state. It's not as black and white as some other places, but it works well for us. I see. Gents, can you tell us any recent clinical changes you've made to better address the needs of your communities? Sure. We try to stay on top of the line like anyone else. Um, there are other flight teams in the state, and we need to compete with ourselves as well as them to uh, be the preferred provider. Um, you know, we're, we're CAMES accredited. That's something uh, no other large company can say in the state of Alaska. We, um, we study closely our numbers and our metrics to see how we perform clinically. Um, we've sent people off for ECMO specialist training. Um, Alaska doesn't have a lot of patients that go on ECMO. There are no ECMO services in the state of Alaska, so those patients will get shipped out. But we have many people that are trained to participate in these transports. Um, even this morning, I was at the Blood Bank of Alaska, and we're um, trying to get the ink dry on the paper so we can be the first team in the state that starts carrying blood. Uh, we recognize that uh, the golden hour um, as people used to refer to, is different in Alaska. The golden hour might actually be golden two days, um, and there's not a lot of surgical services available to the public outside of Anchorage, and that's where we come in. As we bring a lot of patients to, we are the first one on scene, and if we can provide them with blood, we can provide them with uh, high-tech ventilation, um, all the medications that you would see in an emergency room or an intensive care unit, then we're really making a difference. Thank you for that information. Gentlemen, as far as mission safety goes, can you tell us some of the things that you've done to enhance your mission safety profile? Well, you know, our, our safety management system is pretty robust, but it really comes down to, as I think most organizations are finding, a matter of weaving safety through uh, everything that we're trying to do, through just the day-to-day -day narrative, how we speak about what we're doing. Um, Doug and I were just talking earlier today about a situation where, honestly, we all know we cannot eliminate the risk, but you want to mitigate those risks. You want to identify them early, try to find some way to uh, still 
transport the patient uh, by via whatever means makes sense, but to do so uh, with a mindset toward evaluating, assessing, and mitigating the risk the best we can. And like I said, the safety management system is a big reason we're doing that. As far as uh, reactive things, uh, which again set the stage for adjusting and being proactive in the future, we have a di digital um, feedback form that is done after the transports take place at the end of uh, shifts, and we can capture things that went well, we can capture things that didn't go as well, um, and those go out to the appropriate manager to be able to, in near real time, if you will, address an issue that has just come up, come up with, again, ways to mitigate the risk as we go forward. It's something that um, the manager can put into place fairly quickly once they're aware of it and then send it back out and say, okay, we're going to do things this way or this came up. Be aware that this just happened so that you can uh, adjust accordingly. So um, along the way, because of that digital feedback form, we're able to uh, capture those feedback, ID, uh, identify those hazards early, and again, be proactive as we go forward with it. Great answer. Thank you for that. Uh, gentlemen, uh, I'm sure you're acutely aware that the opioid epidemic is a large issue across the nation. And I just wanted to see if you folks uh, have, a, have much of an issue up there. And if you do, how are you managing that? Who find this one? I can, I can go ahead with it. <laughs> um, I'd say that I have not seen personally or, or institutionally a lot of that. I mean, uh, within the state, um, I think w even within the military, you know, because the legalization of marijuana statewide uh, came into place when I was in the military, that uh, we saw some issues there because you have the conflict, okay, a federal law says you can't, but state law says you can, and so there were some issues there just from a legal standpoint. But from a practical standpoint, of course, we know that, that marijuana can be kind of a gateway into some other harder things. Um, the other side of it has to do more with just the uh, legal, you know, uh, drugs that uh, folks are hanging on to, you know, after they've had a surgery. I know I had to flush a bunch of stuff down the toilet because it was still available, it was there, but I'd used it. To, you know, the prescription was basically done. You got to get rid of it. So I think that's another one. But uh, I don't know, that's, that's one of the main things, just how I'm seeing it. I don't know if you guys want to weigh yeah, in on that one too. From a public health stance, Alaska has really high rates of alcoholism and drug abuse. Um, uh, proportionately line up with a lot of the inner facilities. We just have a unique environment to which that's happening in. And so we do transport those patients. Um, Alaska also has very limited uh, psychiatric resources. Uh, they're in the process of building more um, inpatient psychiatric facilities in the state in a couple different areas. Um, because this is becoming a big problem for us. And we do transport these patients who have this addiction, who have um, a psychiatric problem, and we're transporting them to a generalized ER where they're going to sit there for some time until they can get appropriate care. Uh, we don't have to do a lot of, or we don't do a lot of 911 here in Anchorage municipality itself, and that's probably where a majority of the overdose cases are coming from. But we still have those that are happening out in Bush, Alaska, several hundred miles away. Thank you. Uh, I see you folks at uh, national conferences regularly. I saw you at EMS Today this year, and I know recruiting is a big part of uh, your responsibilities. Uh, just wanted to kind of ask you, um, how do you do with recruiting? you have any challenges? Uh, are people uh, anxious to come up and work for you? 
Uh, where are you with the, uh, the whole recruiting issue? I suppose for everybody who's out there uh, listening, it's probably a similar problem for everybody to identify those folks that are going to be a good fit. They're going to stay a long time. So I don't know. Yeah, if it's yeah that's lame, but. Um, Alaska in general has, has um, an interesting effect on people. You either come up here for two years to get that itch or you stay here forever. Um, and the local hospitals have the same problems that we do is that, um, or the military families, people will come up, they will fall in love, but this, they're, they're out on an adventure and this is not home. And so to answer the question, it is very challenging. And that's part of our recruiting process is to, all right, I, I want you to come see Alaska, but I don't want you to come see Alaska when we get 24 hours of daylight. I want you to come to Alaska when we got five hours of daylight and it's 20 below zero or however cold it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But everyone loves Alaska during the summertime, but the real challenge is winter. And it's not uncommon just to have some natural turnover after a long winter before we head into a winter. And that seems to be the challenge on people. Uh, we've done a lot of recruiting nationally. We do a lot of recruiting locally. And if you look at um, where everyone comes from on our team, you know, we have people from Pennsylvania, Texas, Montana, California, as well as the local homegrowns. So it's a very diverse population, but in the end, everyone that's here really enjoys the activities that we can participate in. Great. There's also a dynamic uh, having to do with uh, a focus that, that we've had, which is get the right person, the right character, integrity kind of person. A lot of people have some of the skills that are needed, but you get the right uh, judgment, a person who can exercise good judgment, because we're talking uh, as far as time and distance, they're on their own for a long period of time having to evaluate situations that are changing quickly, that are hundreds of miles away from home base uh, in very, very challenging weather conditions or terrain to fly through and helicopters maybe. So we want people who are going to have really good judgment and exercise that because we're trusting them to do so. We can't, uh, you know, there are things we just can't control nor should we. We want to get the right people and trust them to do their jobs. Gentlemen, I think it goes without saying there's a lot of intrigue as to how you folks manage your operation. Uh, would you be kind enough to enlighten us about some of the more challenging transports uh, you've experienced over the years? Uh, I think our listeners would uh, be interested in hearing that. That I got one. Uh, we're, uh, a couple of years ago, we had a burn patient uh, about 100 miles north of Anchorage. Uh, local EMS identified that very quickly and called in our helicopter. Uh, that uh, took, it's about a 40 minute flight for the helicopter. And that crew recognized that that patient needed to go to the burn center and the local, the closest one is Seattle. So we activated our fixed wing jet. The helicopter flew in, did a wing to wing transfer right there on the ramp into the Learjet and that patient was at the burn center in the shortest possible time. So those are some of the challenges that, that we come across out here. It is not uncommon for during the summertime for our crews to uh, be placed with the fire department in a rescue boat. During the wintertime, it is not uncommon for our crews to catch a ride with local EMS or civilians on the back of a snow machine or a snowmobile. Um, We've seen uh, dog sleds, hovercraft, hovercraft, blackhawks, and the dog sled. Yeah, smaller single engine aircraft, definitely. Uh, and it, it is just the, the logistics of moving a patient from point A to point B. And there's big mountains in the way, and there's big rivers in the way, and um, that patient is not in a um, easy to get to location on a regular basis. 
we do rendezvous with the Coast Guard on um, islands out on the Aleutian chain. Um, but sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get and you have to be able to go with that flow. And that's um, a big challenge for some people who come from controlled working environments. Sure. Um, sure. For us, it's not all that abnormal is to show up and we hope that's the right truck that we're getting into because there's no other truck on the runway. <laughs> did I hear dog sled? Yep, have been on a dog sled, yep. And I have, just for a background, I'm from Pennsylvania. I work for the Philadelphia Fire Department. So it's an adjustment to come up and work uh, for a company like LifeMed and realize that you've just gone from your expertise of being a paramedic or nurse, and now you need to be an expert logistician or problem solver without uh, any exaggeration to that. Thank you for that response. So gents, I got to ask this question. Uh, um, are all of you transplants or are all of you um, born and raised in the Alaska frontier? Steve, Steve is a native Alaskan from a uh, village uh, at Dillingham. Um, Russ, you've probably been here longer than you haven't, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm a transplant. Uh, Eric's been here quite a while. Yeah. Um, fairly good mix, but I will say uh, as we start the, as we hire today, I, I would say for every 10 people we hire, nine are probably the lower 48. We don't have the pool of, of clinicians like I was used to having in other states and around metro areas where you've got that line of people, local people in your own town that are ready to fill that. Um, we typically have to look pretty far and wide. It's hard for people in Alaska to get experience to this level um, with such a small pool of people. We have less than a million people in the state. So, so a question that has just come up um, as far as your flights go, are they mostly IFR or VFR flights or a 50-50 combination? Uh, I would say, I mean, obviously, depending on the weather, um, since we, we're primarily fixed wing, we're flying a lot of IFR. We're flying under IFR rules, uh, controlled airspace, um, and, and in contact with towers at all times. Even more out in rural Alaska, um, we're still doing following. Um, when it comes to our rotor wing, we do not do any IFR. We do all VFR. So you can imagine with the weather, we supplement a lot of our rotor with our fixed wing. Sure, sure. And as a, as a helicopter pilot uh, in the military, you really can't do your job uh, unless you can get under the clouds, see under the clouds, get to the ground. So most of that stuff, obviously, in the military, you're IFR uh, qualified, certified, and current. You're seeing get through that stuff. But to do your job, you've got to be VFR under the clouds, obviously. So, And I'm assuming our ground transports are all VFR. I'm assuming the ambulances are staying VFR. So I'm not sure. checked for sure. No Tesla self-driving okay. All right, good. I'm encouraged to do that. So, gentlemen, you knew this question was coming, uh, and uh, I'm sure people were dying to hear. So, might I ask, what are the temperature extremes that you folks deal with during the winter months? I know that's something that's probably going to floor most of us, but uh, if you could uh, give us some insight on that, I think that would be interesting to hear your response. Uh, Depends on where you are. I can I can talk to the Fairbanks. I used to I was stationed up there in the army and went back. And uh, an example of this isn't normal, but it's not uncommon either. Um, I was working at a place there, and eight o'clock one morning in September, I looked at the thermometer. It was seventy degrees, beautiful September day. Twenty-four hours later, same spot, same thermometer, negative thirty. So a hundred degree swing in less than twenty-four hours. So it really can be extreme. I think my, I lived in Fairbanks 
first of all, uh, when I first moved to Alaska, I think the lowest that I was in was minus 56 in Fairbanks. I think for Yukon one day we landed there, it was minus 60. You've got to keep one engine spinning uh, and hurry up and get the patient on board because shutting the aircraft down is an option when you don't have services at the airport. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And Fairbanks is, uh, you know, a four and a half, five hour drive north of where we are in Anchorage. And um, it doesn't look that far when you look at the state as a whole. But, you know, again, somebody like me being from Pennsylvania, I think it's the equivalent of driving to one of the Carolinas. It's, it's far. Um, you can find, uh, but it's also 90 something in the summer in Fairbanks. So, got it all. Yep. So, as we close here, gentlemen, is there anything you'd like to add about the organization? We'd really be interested and we can't thank you enough for the time that you've given us today, but uh, feel free. The floor is pretty much open. If you'd like to add anything. No, I'll touch real quick on one of the questions I, I, I kind of prepared for and thought about a little bit and I thought maybe it's useful to share with the industry. One of the big operational challenges that we have, you know, we've touched on the logistics, the weather, the, the size and everything like that. But I think like everybody else, um, cost uh, going up. Um, it's it's costing more to run a medevac operation than than what you're actually being paid or supported with. Um, and I think that's where, just like everybody else, we have to find ways to do it better, cheaper, um, and not in a quality sense, but just in a monetary sense, um, and, and how to be more efficient and still to be able to deliver the type of care that we do to our community for half of what we used to you know have to spend on it. Um, as inflation doesn't really catch up with that. So I thought about it and I'm like, you know, I think that's probably our biggest operational challenge. If money was no object, we'd, uh, we'd be able to take care of people pretty well. Sorry, gents, uh, I could keep you online here for an hour, but the questions keep coming. So I'll, I'll add one more in here and uh, ask you. Uh, the question comes is, how does insurance companies deal with uh, some of your transports that have multiple legs? Uh, I recognize that that probably happens more frequently up there than it does in the lower 48. So, uh, any response to that? A lot of that's just education on their end. Um, they don't realize, like, they sometimes they have to turn to the internet and be like, oh, I didn't realize that was an island or that there wasn't a road or there wasn't a hospital or why are you flying this patient? Um, uh, 2,000 miles when these services were not available between point A and point B. So eventually, they, I mean, uh, quick make claims took that learning curve really quickly. Other people have a hard time trying to understand um, where some of these villages even exist, um, what does and does not exist there, because some of our villages are remote and they lack resources. And so when we show up there, and essentially the EMT is the highest level of care in the village, um, and we transport them several hundred miles over a mountain range to Anchorage, they're like, well, why don't they stay and get treated at the clinic? Um, it's just education. And, and that's it's a fun process to have to learn because that's local knowledge. And when we go to those communities, we eventually know like, oh, this is, this is Johnny working the clinic today. How are you doing? He's been here for 20 years. And that's just relationship building. Sure, sure. Thank you. That was a great answer to an interesting dilemma that you folks approach and manage each day. Uh, guys, I got to tell you, thank you so much for doing this, taking time from your busy day to spend a few moments with me and our listeners. I know this will be an, a podcast that many will download and take a listen to. Um, so again, my deepest thanks to you, your entire organization. I wish you all the best and listen, please be safe out there. Thanks again for your time, gents. Have a great day. 
My thanks to each of you for attending today's 10Q30 presentation. We hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. We encourage you to, to join us again as we have plans for these programs about every other month. So please feel free to stop back and take in all of our board and caller podcast series. For now, my name is Gary Harvat. I'm the Director of Client Services. I wish each of you a great day. And hey, be it in Alaska or the lower 48, be safe out there.